God, you have been so generous. Teach us how to be generous. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome to Cross of Life. My name is Caleb. I'm the pastor here at our congregation, and I have a cold, so I apologize if I sniffle into the microphone at any time during my sermon. Um, I'm on the back end of it, which is nice, but uh, it's still affecting me a little bit. We're finishing our For the Generations to Come sermon series today, which has been our campaign we've run the last uh, month, so that we can hopefully engage our members in more ministry, um, bring everyone along in the things that we're doing, and hopefully get ourselves out of this building and into a facility that we can call our own we're finishing up that series today. It's Commitment Sunday, and commitment cards are going to come in today. Um, we'll talk about that at the end of the sermon, but for now, I want to focus our hearts again on the scripture because it is the rule and norm for our life. It gives us direction, peace, purpose, and comfort. Now, the text that you see in your bulletin, if you're going to take notes with us today, is Joshua chapter 1. Uh, we're going to get to that text, um, but I wanted to take a little bit of time to focus on the other text that we read today from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, during this week, I had a number of people ask me about Matthew chapter 6, and it turns out that I had planned a month and a half ago that that would be the, one of the texts for reading for today, so I thought, wow, awesome, God's kind of plan there. Um, but I figured since so many people had questions about it, I figured it'd be good for us to talk about it in, um, in our worship service today. So, we're going to talk through Matthew chapter 6, that part of the Sermon on the Mount um, that Jesus gave us and that Matthew records for us. The Sermon on the Mount is notorious for being misinterpreted when it comes to Christian doctrine. In fact, it's one of the hardest pieces of Scripture to understand at first glance. You really do have to dig into what Jesus is doing with his Sermon on the Mount to understand the bigger picture. Now, the biggest error that people make when they read the Sermon on the Mount is very often they read it out of context. And I don't just mean context of the sermon or context of the book of Matthew, but context of the whole Bible. To understand this, you have to understand Matthew's purpose in reading, or writing, excuse me. Matthew is one of four Gospels. The Gospels are the biographies of Jesus that we have recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them has a little different characteristic to them. They're, they're like four different authors looking at the same thing from different angles. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark is short and quick, and Mark puts as much content as he can in as few words as he can. Um, I like to think of Mark as kind of the comic book gospel. Like, there's not a lot of dialogue back and forth, but there's a lot of action going on. And Jesus is sort of a dark hero in the Gospel of Mark. Not a lot of people understand him. His family is weirded out by him. Everybody thinks he's crazy. That's Mark's angle as he looks at Jesus. A Luke's angle is a little bit different. Luke is more concerned with getting all the details right and making sure the chronology fits together. Uh, you could maybe think of Luke a little bit more like, like an epic, like uh, Lord of the Rings or something like this, where he goes through and gives you perfect pictures of everything that's happening so that you can know all of this actually was real history. Um, if you're interested in that, by the way, the next sermon series that we're going to do starting next week is called You Heard It Here First. It's our Christmas series, and at the beginning of that series, next Sunday, I'm actually going to spend a bunch of the sermon time talking through Luke and how Luke shows us that the Christmas story is real history. It would be a great uh, opportunity for you to invite a friend to come to worship um, next Sunday. John's gospel, then, is the third, or the last one, 
John is more concerned with the words of Jesus than anything else. John records more words out of Jesus' lips than any of the other gospel writers. If you have one of those Bibles that has the red letters wherever Jesus is speaking, it's full of red letters. Matthew's gospel then is a little bit different, of course, as well. Matthew's gospel is the bridge. The bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a reason it comes first in the New Testament. After you finish reading the Old Testament, you come to Matthew because Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has been pointing forward to the Messiah time and time again, and Matthew wants you to know this is the guy. So Matthew records more quotations of the Old Testament than any of the other Gospels. He even uses Hebrew names for things, where the other, other Gospel writers will use Greek or Roman names. Matthew wants you to see Jesus as everything the Old Testament was pointing to in one person. When he talks about Jesus, he tells a story at the beginning of his gospel that no other gospel writer tells us. He tells us the story of Jesus escaped to Egypt. Maybe you remember this story. Jesus is born, and he's born king of the Jews, right, is his title. Well, Herod, who was the king at that time, the real king of the Jews at that moment, hears about this and, of course, does not want his throne usurped. So he sends out his uh, soldiers to kill all the baby boys under the age of two. And they go out and do that. But thankfully, Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus escape to Egypt. They get away from Herod so that Jesus is not killed in the slaughter of the holy innocents, is what the church has referred, it, referred to it as. And in that story, Matthew gives us a quotation from the Old Testament, from the book of Hosea. Hosea is not a very commonly read book in our church services, but it's a, a book that talks about God's faithfulness to Israel. And in it, Hosea records these words from God, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in the original context, Hosea is talking about how the nation of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt, led out by Moses, into the wilderness, and eventually to the promised land. But Matthew quotes that verse, talking about Jesus. Now, he does that to set us up for understanding what he's going to do for the rest of his gospel. If you remember the chronology of the nation of Israel, it starts, right, when they are pulled out of slavery in Egypt. When they start to leave, they come up against the Red Sea, and the Egyptians have figured out, we just lost our whole slave force, so they send their army out to catch these guys, bring them back. So the nation of Israel is between a rock and a hard place, or a sea and an army, and they don't know where to go, so God, by the power of Moses, is raising his hands, parts the Red Sea, and they can cross through Remember this? And then, and then the water comes and crashes down on the Egyptian army and the, the Israelites go free. They're then out in the wilderness for 40 years because they were not faithful to God. And then God gives them the Ten Commandments and sends them into the promised land under the uh, leadership of a man named Joshua. Here's the pattern. Egypt, water, wilderness, commandments, and then eventually promised land. Now, when Matthew writes his gospel, he writes the story of Jesus coming out of Egypt with his parents. The very next story he tells is Jesus' baptism, where Jesus is not saved from his sins, but is baptized to fulfill all righteousness for us. After Jesus' baptism, he's immediately sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, where he does not fail, but beats Satan at every temptation. And then we get the Sermon on the Mount. And what Matthew wants you to understand by the way he crafts his gospel is Jesus mimics Israel. 
If you're taking notes with us, that's our first fill-in-the-blank for today. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus mimics Israel. He wants you to understand that, Matthew, that the Sermon on the Mount is the retelling of the law, the Ten Commandments that God gave originally to his Old Testament people. And you can see Jesus doing this. If you would actually read the text of the sermon, you'd see places where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, he's talking through the fifth commandment. He does the same thing with the sixth commandment. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus tells, says, here are the Ten Commandments, and intensifies them. It'd be easy for us to say, you know what, I've kept the Fifth Commandment, haven't murdered anybody, kept the Sixth Commandment, haven't cheated on my wife. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's, got, it's far deeper than that. And by doing so, he shows us the purpose of the law. He shows us that the law is not meant to show us how to be better people. It's meant to show us our sin to show us how bad we are and how we have no chance to live up to God's standards. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 7. He shows us exactly what, it, what uh, Jesus is doing. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not know what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. You understand what Paul is saying? You're sinful whether there's law or not. Whether God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses or whether Jesus preaches this Sermon on the Mount, you're sinful. But the law is meant to show you how sinful you are. Otherwise, you would be blissfully ignorant of your own sin. You would just live your whole life thinking this is just the way that it is. There's nothing more to life than just making myself happy, being selfish all the time, seeking pleasure wherever I can. But God says, no, you need to know that you're sinful so that I can save you. Here's the law. Here's it outlined for you so that you can see how far short you've fallen. And so that's what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. He comes to the the people there who are listening to him and essentially says, you guys have no chance. You're never going to keep the law. You can't keep it. You're sinful. You're rebellious by nature. Here are all the ways you should be living up, but none of you are. So it's a wonderful, wonderful um, gospel at the end of his sermon when he says these words, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, face value, this actually looks like it's more law, right? Listen to Jesus and do what he says. Except this is probably not the best translation of this verse. So the word that is translated put them into practice, it's a Greek word poieo, and it does mean put it into practice or do things, but it also means to produce. So if you were talking about a field, you would say a field poieos, corn or grain or whatever grows out of that field. And so maybe a better way to talk about this would be to say, whoever hears these words of mine believes them and starts speaking them is one who builds their house on the rock. See, Jesus' point in this sermon is, you guys cannot do this. So believe in me. Believe my words. I'm here to save you. You think it's about the rules. It's not about the rules. It's about me. 
if you're building your life on, on, on keeping the rules, doing the right things all the time, you are like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain come, the storms of life come, and you realize that you have no foundation. But if you hear Jesus' words and you believe them, and you've built your house on a solid foundation, you built your life on a solid foundation. Maybe to put it a different way, we cannot keep God's law. So thank God for Jesus. Jesus is essentially saying, in every way you've failed. I'm cutting off all of you at the knees so that you believe in me. You stop believing in yourself, stop believing in your goodness, just believe in me. But that's not how many people read this text. Very often when I've heard the Sermon on the Mount preached, it's preached as moralism. Here's how you got to live. Christians live like this. We look at those words at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for those, for they will be shown mercy, and we think, all right, got to be merciful. Except how many of you are merciful? None of you. I'm not. I'm always thinking about how I can get back at people who hurt me. It's the very first thing that comes into my mind when I'm hurt. We read those words that say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How many of you are pure in heart? I'm not. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We think, yes, I'm going to go out and be a peacemaker, except you don't even know the amount of rebellion and discord you cause in your own life in the lives of the people around you. To borrow an internet meme, Jesus is saying, you can't do it. So trust me. Now with all that in mind, let's go back to that text. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is again the gospel of the Lord. Now the question that I got from a number of people this week is, isn't that what we're kind of doing? like by putting a plate up here in front and having our leaders go first and, and putting their commitments in the plate, aren't we sort of announcing our giving with trumpets like hypocrites? Well, let's examine the text. What's the main point of those verts, verses in the text? Is it that we don't do any giving publicly? Well, that would be a problem because the Christian church for its entire existence has been giving its offerings publicly. Every Sunday, we pass around plates, and you all give publicly. So that can't be the main point. The main point must be something different. And if you understand the context of what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount, you understand it's not about external behavior. It's about the heart. Jesus is far less concerned with whether or not you are giving publicly, more concerned with why are you doing it. Are you doing it so that people notice you? Are you doing it so that you get attention? Are you doing it so that God loves you? So that people are impressed? Well, then, yeah, you're wrong. Like, that's what the verse is talking about. You shouldn't do that. But we have to be careful. Because there are a number of places in the Bible where God does tell people to set examples for others. 
Jesus himself said to his disciples, I'm setting you an example. Love one another. The Apostle Paul said to one of his churches, imitate me. Do what I'm doing. Apostle Paul said to his understudy Timothy, set an example for your congregation. And so God very clearly does want people in leadership positions to set an example for other people. And I suppose you could say that our leaders, when they came up here and put their commitment cards in the plate, and when I did, we didn't have our hearts in the right place. It's certainly possible. But we put some safeguards in place. For example, nobody knows what they wrote on those commitment cards, right? We know the total, but no one of us knows what the other ones gave besides our treasurer who read them all and just gave us the total number. And you don't know the total number, and I'm not going to tell you. Because it's not about what our leaders gave. It's about our whole congregation altogether. In fact, we're not going to reveal that number until we've taken all commitments from our whole congregation as one unit. We're not sounding giving like trumpets. We're setting an example. Go first. Be responsible. Lead this congregation. But even if, even if through all that, there's still a problem, that our hearts are still in the wrong place, then what are we supposed to do? Be better? That's not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's to repent. And if my heart was in a wrong place, I repent. I'm sorry. And I know that Jesus' words tell me that I'm forgiven. And I hope that you would do the same for each other, for me, that you would watch out for each other and say, if you're falling into sin, can I, can I restore you gently tell you what the scripture says and then tell you how it forgives you because more than better behavior, we want grace filling people's lives. So we're going to give commitment cards later in this worship service. And as you think about those commitment cards, I'm sure there's a lot of emotion around them. Some of you are really excited. You know what you're going to write on that commitment card. Maybe you already have written it. You've prayed about it, talked about it, and you're happy about it. Some of you maybe aren't. You're not sure. You talked about it with your spouse and you didn't come to a conclusion. You want to give this much? She wants to give that much? You're not really sure what's going to go on that piece of paper. Some of you don't want to write the number that you think you should give because you realize that that means that money is going to have to leave your bank account. You're not going to have it anymore. And some of you just wandered in here on a Sunday morning and didn't realize it was Commitment Sunday and you're totally lost. I understand that. But it illustrates something really cool for us that the scripture from Joshua is going to teach us we can do with God's help. It's going to show us that commitments expose uncertainty. I mean, think of any of the major commitments you've made in your life. Maybe to buy a house, to buy a car, to get married, to move. Those huge commitments exposed a whole lot of uncertainty in your life and caused a lot of emotion, right? You're thinking to yourself, you know, if I marry this person, what if they're not the person to, uh, in 20 years that they are today? What if they're not the right one for me? What if they're not a good father or a good mother? Think about that house. Like, what if it's got all sorts of problems? What if it's in a bad neighborhood with that car? What if it's a lemon? What, what if it's not safe and I get in an accident? What if I move to that city and I can't find friends or can't find a job? There's all sorts of uncertainty that comes with commitments. But I want you to know that the best stories in the Bible start with uncertainty. 
And through a commitment that God's people make to him and to trust in him, God does amazing things. Think back to the story of Abraham. Remember Abraham, the father of many nations? His origin story is not that well known. Abraham wasn't a Christian when he was born or raised. He became a Christian later in his life when God called him and said, I need you to leave your people and your land and go to a place that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a great nation and bless you, and all nations will be blessed through you. And Abraham thought, all right, sounds good. Where's the land? And God said, I'll tell you when you get there. Start walking. And Abraham thought, I'm not even a great family. Like, I'm almost 100 years old, and my wife is almost 90, and we haven't had a child yet. I can't even be a, a, a great family, much less a great nation, God. How's that going to happen? And God said, I'll take care of it. Just start walking. And you know what happened through Abraham? He started walking, and God blessed him. And he became the father of many nations to the point where actually three major world religions all trace their heritage back to him. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all trace their heritage back to Abraham. In the face of uncertainty, he said, okay, God, you said so, I'll go. Think about Moses. Remember Moses? God called him to be the leader of the nation of Israel out of Egypt in slavery. The burning bush, Jesus in the burning bush says to Moses, Moses, I need you to go and take my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, um, I'm not a very good speaker. Jesus says, I'll take care of it. I just need you to go. And Moses says, what am I supposed to say to them? Jesus says, I'll take care of it. Just go. And what happens through Moses? The people are led out of Egypt, through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, and into the Promised Land. What about David? King David, before he was King David. There's a giant on the other side of the army, and no one wants to fight him, and David says, well, God's word says any blasphemer has to die, so I'll go. And in the face of uncertainty, he went out there with five smooth stones and a sling, and Israel's greatest enemy was destroyed. What about Jesus? Jesus was hanging on the cross. All of his friends deserted him besides one. When his friends came to his empty tomb, they all stood there with their mouths wide open, because they couldn't figure out what was going on. But what was Jesus doing? Saving the world. See, in the face of uncertainty, God made great things happen when his people were willing to commit to him. And that's illustrated again for us in the story of Joshua. Joshua was the man who took over from Moses after Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years with the children of Israel because of their disobedience. Joshua was the one who was going to bring these people into the promised land. And so we get the first chapter of his story. We're going to read through it, and we're going to stop at different points and give a little bit of comment here to show you the uncertainty that they were facing, God's call to them, and their willingness to follow it. Joshua chapter 1. This is what happened after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, the attendant of Moses, Moses, my servant, is dead, so prepare to cross the Jordan River that lies in front of you. You and all this people prepare to go into the land I am about to give to the people of Israel. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot has stepped, just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and from Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the Mediterranean Sea where the sun sets, this will be your territory. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. 
Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not abandon you, and I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will divide this land among these people, this land I swore to their fathers that I would give to this people. Just be strong and very courageous. So it's time to go. And God says to Joshua, prepare. You're going across the river into the land I'm going to give you. Joshua could have had all sorts of questions at that point, right? What's going to happen when we cross the river? And by the way, how are we going to cross the river? I heard there's people over there that, that they're giants, that they're dangerous and scary, and they have fortifications. How are we going to do that, God? What does God say? Just be strong and very courageous. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Just be strong and very courageous. If you're taking notes with us, that's the next fill in the blank. God's command is just to be strong and be very courageous. He continues, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. You sensing a theme? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the covenant that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered, Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Whatever you, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So Joshua goes to the people and says what God says. It's time to go. I don't really know exactly where we're going or how we're getting there or what's going to happen, but it's time to go. And to the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, he says, go first. If you're taking notes, it's the next fill in the blank. He took those people who he knew had strength and had courage and said, you guys go first. This people needs to know to be strong and courageous. You guys go first. And through it, God blessed the nation of Israel and brought them into the promised land. In a couple minutes, we're going to put commitment cards in that plate down there. Our leaders went first. They were strong and courageous, willing to put their money where their mouth was. We pray that you have gone to God in prayer and asked him how to be generous and that you too will follow God's call. Now, I don't know what it's going to look like for each of you. If you need to write zero on that commitment card because that's where you're at with God, great. Please still put it in the plate. 
we're a congregation, we're together, and God has cut us all off at the knees with the law and given us all the gospel that redeems us and brings us to life in him so that we can walk together and hopefully bring that gospel to more people. Your generosity will change lives. Maybe you've already seen it start to change your own life. In the future, it will change the lives of other people. And so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to take some time, maybe two minutes or so, for you to talk with your family if they came with you, to pray again to God, and then fill out your commitment card. After you fill it out, stay seated. I'm going to invite us up in sections just so we're not all climbing over each other to get out of our seats. We're going to put our commitment cards in there. We're going to again pray and thank God for the generosity that he's given us. Before we do, I want you to fill in your last fill in the blank. Generosity will change lives. God says so. And I pray that he continues to do it through your generosity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's a lot of emotion in the room right now. Some of it's fear, some of it's anger, some of it's joy, some of it's hopefulness, and, and all of it we know you know. And so whatever each person needs, I pray that you fill their heart with it through your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you motivate them to be generous, and you bring them closer to you. I know I can't do it. I know no human organization can do it. Only you can do it. So we lay our tasks at your feet and ask that you would make them successful. We ask these things in your name. Amen.